Hello, everybody. This is Wes Woodbury with Fundamental Games, and we're here with another Kickstarter journey. Today, we're with uh, nine-time creator Gil Hova. I'm really honored and uh, pleased to have Gil on the show, and we're going to talk about a live Kickstarter. It's the first time we've done that in the show, so welcome, Gil. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Wes. Yeah, great to have you on here. Um, I'm going to quickly run through how your Kickstarter is doing, and then we're going to dive into not only the Kickstarter you're doing now, but some of the ones that you've done in the past that kind of led to this point. So let's take a look. The Rival Networks is a two-player version of the popular board game about running TV networks. And um, Gil has already raised over $30,000 on Kickstarter, and he's got 873 backers right now with a week to go, seven days to go. So that's really exciting to see, and that's uh, kind of a lead-off of another game that he has had a lot of success with. And the cool thing is that he, I believe, you funded on day one, Gil? Yes, 14 hours. Although uh, I'm not, I'm never really crazy about that stat. Um, I mean, in my case, the funding goal was realistic. Like, I do need $20,000 to make this game. Uh, but, you know, yeah. historically, there have been people who have set really low funding goals, and then they both funded in two minutes. Uh, when the funding goal was like $100. So um, I, I do have to say, always take that metric with a grain of salt. Yeah, the metric really depends on how realistic it is and how much money somebody was willing to put in and still make the project where yours was yep. really, you needed that money to to make at least break even, if not make a little bit of profit, right? Yeah, and also I, I'm kind of a throwback. I use stretch goals as actual stretch goals. So um, every time um, I hit a stretch goal, you know, that's that kind of adds to the production cost. Uh, but that's the idea. The more money I get, the more I can get this economy of scale. And kind of even though the production cost is the production cost is staying the same, uh, but the, with the unit count going up, uh, I get that economy of scale. And uh, that's one of the things you have to do with uh, at least I believe you have to do with stretch goals. Um, I want to start with a disclaimer that I I don't view myself as one of these like real visionary creators. Um, I feel there are amazing people on Kickstarter, you know, people like uh, Justin Jacobson of Restoration Games and Patrick Leader of right. Leader Games and James Hudson of Skybound. And uh, these are people who really know Kickstarter. They really understand Kickstarter. They have had amazing results. Um, me, I am I consider myself a game designer who uses Kickstarter to create my projects and so I don't really feel like I am one of these like real um, in the know creators. In a lot of ways, I just kind of got lucky with some of my projects, and I feel like that's really what I'm what I'm working with. I do what I think are best practices, but um, if uh, James Hudson and I ever disagree on something, you probably want to listen to James. Well, I'd say you still have a lot more credit behind you than you than you uh, give yourself credit for, I should say. Uh, $350,000 raised over those nine Kickstarters is pretty impressive. Oh, uh, so you. even though it's just your own personal creations, uh, those creations have gone a long way, and I think you've made a lot of people happy. Uh, so I, you were I, I talking about... Uh, yeah, uh, I think you do well. Uh, so Gil, what is it? You mentioned that you like to design games, and you may have already partially answered this question, but what what is it that keeps you coming back to Kickstarter for these games and their expansions rather than trying to operate through a distribution or uh, other channel? First thing, the first part of the uh, question that I'll answer is, I like I said before, I'm a little bit of a throwback. I'm using Kickstarter kind of in the way that it was intended for a creator without the capital to raise this sort of money. So 
I need Kickstarter. Like uh, Kickstarter is, I mean, yes, it's an excellent marketing marketing platform. Yes, it's great to know how many units of a product I need ahead of time. But yeah. also, it is a place to gather capital. And uh, while there are other companies that don't necessarily need it, need it, I very much do. So that's the number one reason I use Kickstarter. Uh, that said, Kickstarter and distribution are not mutually exclusive. I do go through distribution uh, once my games are done. So I actually try to print at least a thousand extra copies, sometimes more depending on how popular the game is. And then I put those into distribution. Right. No, that's that's great to know because some some people depend just on the Kickstarter value. Some people go above and beyond, and you yeah. do. And that's the you you tend to go to a few conventions, and we'll probably talk about that as well. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I'm sure you sell some copies there. Yeah, not that's not as many as you'd think, uh, especially because up until this year, a lot of my titles were a little bit older. So I've sort of been spending the past few years reinforcing my product lines, and uh, this mm -hmm. year I'm going very aggressive in making new products. Well, not very aggressive. I'm not making 40 new products. Uh, but I've got several new items that I'll be going to conventions with. Although um, my convention attendance, my convention presence, will be a little toned down this year from last year. Well, you, you've seen great success with this one. Anyway, the networks um, is already, like we said, over 30,000. And I'm curious, when we compare that to your original game, the networks that raised 145,000, between the original and the expansion, and here we are with this other version, but not quite an expansion. It's a two-player only game. What did you kind of expect, knowing that it was a little bit different and had more limitations to player count? What What did you think you'd expect from funding? Yeah, the numbers for the networks were just absolutely bonkers, and I I am so grateful uh, that it happened. The original networks campaign raised just over a hundred thousand dollars. The networks executives, the expansion, raised one hundred forty-five thousand. Um, in retrospect, uh, they got uh, those numbers. I think the original Networks game, that was on Kickstarter in 2015, I want to say. And that was a yeah. time when I think it was still more acceptable for a creator to go on to Kickstarter with minimal art and say, this is what we want the game to look like, uh, but it's going to have this amazing theme and really good mechanisms, and then get a bunch of uh, playthrough videos, a bunch of previews, and uh, people will go for it. Uh, you can't do that anymore. Kickstarter is far more sophisticated. The audience is far more, uh, I don't want to say savvy, because they were savvy back then. Um, I think their yeah. expectations are a lot higher. You know, they want uh, incredibly detailed graphics. They want to see all the art done. They want to see as much done as possible. They don't want to just see a few pieces of art here and there. Um, so, uh, and then uh, when executives uh, hit Kickstarter, uh, at that point, the base networks game was not uh, easily available. Like, I had this, call it a champagne problem, of uh, every time I would get a shipment of the networks, a printing of the networks, it would vanish from the warehouse in 24 hours, just gone, all to distributors. Uh, then I'd use that... problem. Yeah, I know. <laughs> then I'd use that... Uh, well, I mean, it's still a problem, right? Uh because I would use still, that, yes. yeah, I, I'd use that to finance another print run, and then that would vanish in uh, 24 hours. And you know, it, it did create problems because there was one distributor who would not touch my games, and I yeah. finally saw them at a convention, and I'm like, uh, so why won't you carry the networks? And he said, because you only have stock like two days out of the year. And I said, okay, well that's a pretty good reason. <laughs> so uh, executives, yeah. yeah, the executives Kickstarter pro. Uh, that that works executives Kickstarter campaign 
solve that problem uh, because a lot of people backed for the original game as well. And for a lot of people, that was the, the best way for them to get the original game. And that's one reason why that campaign is my best campaign. That was 140K. Um, and, yeah. Um, and yeah, it, so now with the networks pretty easily available at game stores, there isn't a huge amount of demand. And this particular game, it's a two-player version of the networks that a lot of people haven't played yet. Uh, so I think because of those reasons... Uh, also, I think uh, there's a couple of other things with the campaign. I think in retrospect, I think in order for it to have done a little bit better, I should have uh, I offered it with the executives um, expansion. And um, because the ex executives expansion is so small and I think it's actually a really good expansion, I included it in the retail copies of the game. And in retrospect, I probably should have put that uh, as a um, something that that uh, I call it a module. It's not an exclusive uh, so what it is, is it ships to Kickstarter backers, and then I sell it at conventions and online after the game comes out. I don't do exclusives. I hate exclusives for multiple reasons. Okay. Uh, but um, I think uh, that's one thing. Like, there's some people who are just like, eh, I'll wait for a retail, um, which is a phenomenon I haven't really had before. But I think this campaign, I think, got a little too much, like, I think I needed to offer backers a little bit more. That said, you know, I've got over 800 backers, which is not terrible, and I'll probably have, when all is said and done, at least 1,200 backers. So, you know, I'm pretty happy with that. You know, I will be able to make the game, and I'm pretty excited about it. It's going to look really good. Um, and there's a couple of other things. Um, also, um, I shift a lot of stuff to BackerKit these days. If people want to order multiple copies, they do that only in BackerKit. Retailer pledges I do only in BackerKit. Uh, Add-ons I do only in BackerKit. Yeah. So that's actually going to be at least probably $10,000 more than I'm going to get from BackerKit. So while the numbers right now say uh, I have just over $30,000, I'm really probably closer to $45K once you include the BackerKit numbers. Yeah, because you're not falsely inflating it with multiple copies per person or through oh, retailers. And that's I, a good I, thing because then you can legitimately see how much individual demand there is. Well, well I disagree. It's not falsely. I mean, it, it is an honest thing. Uh, the, the issues are, number one, uh, Kickstarter, the, just the way Kickstarter works, it's really, really hard to track. Like – the, the way I would have to do it is I would have to clutter my page with all these extra pledge levels. And really what I want is the first pledge level you see is this is the main pledge level. $25 to get a copy of the game. You know, no messing around, no weirdness, nothing like, oh, get th $3 and you get a bumper sticker. You know, I don't want to offer that. I want the first thing to see to be the main yeah. thing. And then after that, all the premium pledges, you know, $150, you become, we, we take a picture of you and you, we include you as um, a star in, on a star card in the game. Uh, that's something I did with the base game and I'm doing it with this and it's going to look really good. Um, but uh, so the other th reason I do that is because uh, people who pledge for multiple copies uh, and uh, retailers, especially, um, you know, they're, dropping like at least $200 um, on a pledge. And with retailers, that capital is going to be tied up for the better part of a year. Um, and for retailers, that's really bad. That's bad news. Um, so by doing yeah. it in BackerKit, um, I only charge the cards just as, you know, the games are on the water, which means their capital is now only going to be tied up for like a month or two which is a much better way for a retailer to, hand, to handle it from a retailer point of view. Now their capital isn't tied up like it would be with a regular Kickstarter pledge. Uh, so I don't think it falsely inflates 
the demand. Um, and in a lot of ways, it falsely deflates the demand. You know, uh, there is more demand for the game than what than what's shown. It's just that the bulk stuff I'm doing later. Now, if Kickstarter had a more reasonable way to yeah. handle add-ons, like for example, like it, uh, if you want to order a copy of the base networks game as well, which a lot of people want to do, doing that in Kickstarter is really hard. Like I said, I don't want to do another pledge level for it. I want you to just click a button, and say, okay, add this. And Kickstarter doesn't really have that you have to create a new pledge level. So that's why I do it in Backerkit. It's much easier for me. It literally saves weeks for me. So being a one-person operation who also works part-time uh, to make ends meet, I have to get all the help I can and do the most efficient way I can do it, and this is how. Yeah, that's some some great insight into that. And I, I've used a pledge manager myself, and I know that it, there's different offerings that you can do just by using Kickstarter and then by using Backerkits or pledge managers after. So yeah, uh, pros and cons to both, but I think the the more common route is to use a backer kit now. So, and yeah. it's good to see your insight from it from a major distribution mm-hmm. after the fact. Yeah, one thing now, I we- haven't done with backer kit yet is a lot of campaigns these days charge shipping in the pledge manager. So when you back on Kickstarter, you're only backing for the price, and then you get charged an additional amount in backer kit based on shipping. And I understand why they do it. Um, as a backer, I dislike it. Um, I know a lot of backers dislike it. I think they kind of accept it because it does save um, a lot of issues from the publisher point of view. But I'm going to hold out as long as I can and try to do shipping in the Kickstarter because I feel that's just a little more palatable from a backer point of view. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I've done it both ways and it's uh, more manageable. The, the backers do enjoy having it all up front, uh, but sometimes for the heavier games, it's tough to manage that way. You did talk about stretch goals, and uh, and for the rival networks, for example, you just had one shown at the time that I did some research here, and but for your other games, you often did it anywhere from ten thousand to five thousand per stretch goal. So how do you stagger your stretch goals, and what do you feel are the most impactful to your backers? So the way I view it, stretch goals, I think it's the way you kind of have to view running a company in general, which is you kind of do it like a swan um, on a lake. Uh, looks very placid and uh, looks very calm, but underneath, if you looked at, at its legs, its legs are kicking around like crazy. And that's kind of like what stretch goals are for me. One of the reasons why um, I don't reveal stretch goals until late is because I have a list of several stretch goals that could be the next one. And I have some idea about what it could be, but a lot of times I found find out mid-campaign oh, backers really want this one instead. And this lets me pivot really quickly, really efficiently um, and say, okay, now we're going to do this one instead. You know, uh, like for ex- a good example is with executives, um, had executives not been the first stretch goal, I could have pivoted and said, okay, you're going to get executives, but it won't be in the retail copy. But because I had announced that originally, I can't go backwards. Like I, that I cannot say, all right, retail yeah. copies won't have it anymore because that's, uh, that's a tough thing to do. Um, so, uh, instead I'm just going to, I'm just going to say, all right, leave it be. It goes to the retail and I'll go from there. So, uh, we're going to have a later stretch goal at 40 K where there's going to be, that's the next module. Um, and between then we've had, um, like the 35 K goal is, oh my gosh, I don't even remember what the 35 K goal was. Uh, that's how, um, (laughs) <laughs> that's how how wild it's been right punchboard bits it's uh we're replacing a lot of the bits with punchboard bits um and yeah. you know that's that's been a lot of like there are a lot of things that i was looking at what's what are ways that i can what are stretch goals that i can put in and this was the one that i thought that um 
I think backwards would like the most. I really wanted to see it in the game, and we're very close to unlocking that. And I think we should be able to get to the documentaries and game shows module as well, uh, which also unlocks the on the air expansion for uh, add-ons. Uh, and that was the thing also. Yeah. I want so this is a throwback thing as well. Um, it's a strange stretch goal uh, in that um, part of the stretch goal is on the air is available as an add-on. So we hit 40k. You don't automatically get on the air. It just becomes avail- available as an add-on. So you might be like, well, why not just offer it as an add-on? And the answer is, I don't really know how many add-on orders I'm going to get. I could get 500. I could get 50. And considering that I need to yep. print like at least 2,000, um, I need to know that I've got some sort of capital behind it to make it work. And that's what gets back to uh, this philosophy of using stretch goals as stretch goals. Um, additionally, you know, I've got the extra expense. I've got a few extra cards that I'm going to be making for, uh, documentaries and game shows, um, which, uh, was an expansion that I had originally promised for the base networks game. And I'm still hoping that it's going to appear at some point for the base networks game, but, uh, I don't have any news to announce there, but that's part of the whole thing with these stretch goals. I'm trying to assemble a narrative, uh, and assemble these, uh, these extra goals that people will continue to get excited about and talk about and give them reason to spread the word and uh, get excited. You know, somebody was uh, sort of uh, worried that we wouldn't get to 40K today, uh, probably because they were checking uh, kick track. And uh, my number right. one rule of um, trying to figure out how much a campaign's going to be is don't look at kick track for trending information. It will not give you accurate. Right. Tra- like they will tell you they don't give you act. That's not what kick tracks for. It's more for historical yeah. uh, information. Um, so they're probably checking the kick track and seeing that the kick track was dropping uh, every day, which happens with every project because that's just how kick tracks al- algorithm works. It's still expecting every day to make as much as the first day because it just goes off of daily average. It doesn't expect yeah. you, which most campaigns do. So, um, so yeah, that's that's sort of my deal with these stretch goals um i'm trying to get people excited about hitting um levels past the pledge level um while still being able to afford all of these extra things and picking things that people are excited about and happy about um and that's why i only reveal a few at a time instead of revealing them all at once um also there's a bit of a downer if you know i've got stretch goals planned to like 100k and if I revealed all of them now and the campaign's like only at 30K now, people are going to be disheartened, be like, oh, this campaign isn't doing as well as it could have. So I feel like the optics are a little bit yeah. better if you only reveal a couple of at a time. And that way, you know, it's like, OK, well, everything here is going according to plan, which honestly it is. I mean, all I ask on Kickstarter is that I fund, you know, that's all I hit. I do realistic funding goals and I try to hit those realistic funding goals. And that's all I ask. You know, uh, we're funded. We're actually probably going to be double funded by the by the time this is over. And again, that's not always an accurate metric. But uh, in this case, you know, it is. And that means we're going to hit some stretch goals, which is nice and cool. And uh, that's I'm I'm looking forward to that. No, that's really good to see. And uh, I like your theory of keeping the rest planned but hidden. So you already know what they're going to be, but there's no point in revealing them until you think you can get to that point, because then you build anticipation that you might not even need. So I like how you worded that and how you manage that. That's great. Yeah, and it gives me As flexibility to switch back and forth also. Like I can say, oh, backers really want this other stretch goal. I can switch that. And I think that's really important. That flexibility is really good. Yeah, absolutely. 
As an experienced creator with a history of fulfilling your games, you also seem pretty comfortable starting new campaigns while your last projects are still in production or on a boat or in the middle of uh, distribution. How do you think your backers feel about juggling multiple projects? And is it something that you'd recommend to others? So um, I think there's a couple of different cases here um, because I think what I do, like I only really run a new campaign once the previous campaign is on the boat and shipping. Uh, because at that point, there's nothing I can really do as a creator. Like, I can't push the boat to make it go faster. Whereas when it's at the factory, yeah. there's still a, it's still a very high-touch process. You know, I'm still sending out the shipping plan. There's still a lot of involvement. At this point, I have no real involvement with Hi-Rise anymore. That's all... Um, that's all up to the shipping and logistics company at this point. Um, so um, right. from my perspective, uh, like I don't think that there's uh, anything really misleading, especially because I make it very clear in uh, both the Rival Networks page and High Rise, this is where we stand right now. You know, backers with High Rise know that they're getting the game in March, you know, because that's that's the, the – I originally promised December, and unfortunately this is just how – Kickstarter works sometimes and how uh, yeah. making a game things slip and slip and slip. Uh, thankfully, we were out to get we we're able to get the games out before Chinese New Year. Uh, we missed the coronavirus, thankfully. So uh, had we missed Chinese New Year, uh, that would have been really bad because we would have lost at least an extra week because a bunch of factories in China are closed right now uh, over uh, virus fears. Uh, so. Yeah. Um, so the fact that we got that out is is really good. But going back to uh, running multiple campaigns, there have been companies in the past that would run a campaign, that campaign would wrap up, and then they'd immediately start a new campaign. And that I'm not crazy about because to me that's right. almost taking advantage of your backers. I mean – Let's look at it from a business point of view. From a business point of view, that is an amazing way to work because you're getting constant cash flow. You know, you're getting a real constant, a really good revenue stream. And even if your projects all barely hit the funding goal, you know, that's still cash flow you're getting and it's still really, really good business. Um, but from a Kickstarter point of view, um, it's not great because it pulls you away from all the other projects. I think it dilutes enthusiasm of your future projects. I mean, how can you be get people as excited about project number six of the year as they were about project number one? That's tough. And I think for the board game business as a, as a whole, it's really bad news because um, I think companies are finally starting to step away from this model of releasing as many games as they can in one year and seeing what sticks. Um that is, uh, it's led to our glut of games. Um, honestly, I don't think, I mean, Kickstarter might be part of the issue, but non-Kickstarter companies are definitely culpable in this also. There's a lot of them that uh, release 20 games a year, get one hit out of those, and that one hit funds the other 19 games. And it's, a, it, it's effective. It works. But it winds up um, devaluing the other games, devaluing a bunch of other games, not just the games they release. Um, and yeah. it winds up, I think, harming the industry and all, because now we've got, at Essen, like 1,500 games coming out in one day, and nobody can keep track of that. It hurts everyone. So um, it also opens up the question, and this question's been raging for a long time, like, what is Kickstarter? Like, I've told you how I feel about Kickstarter and how I use Kickstarter. Yeah. I'm a creator, I'm a designer, and I use Kickstarter to make my games real you know i'm using my kickstarter to realize my games uh 
but other companies use Kickstarter as a straight up pre-order platform, you know, and uh, yep. that, yeah, and that is really what this, um, what, what this strategy of releasing a game on Kickstarter, a campaign every month, that's what, that's the pure pre-order strategy is, uh, is that, and um, yeah, that one I'm not as crazy about as a creator. Um, I do think that they're, uh, I'm, I'm okay releasing uh, a Kickstarter when one is still on the boat, as long as all the backers know about it, like from the previous campaign and the current campaign, you know, everything is being uh, shipped and delivered and there's nothing like I'm not being pulled away from the previous campaign because there's no work left to do on the previous campaign. Uh, it's done from my point of view. Yeah. Uh, all the work is now in the shipping company. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it and provide some clarity for, for new creators that might be thinking of such a strategy. Just really make sure that you have everything lined up and basically completed for one project before you even think about launching another one. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like that. Now, in Kickstarter, um, there's a proven trend of the first two days and the last two days always getting that majority of funding. And your games follow a similar trend, although you seem to have a much higher day one percentage compared to others. And most of your campaigns are 22 to 28 days. So what is your best tactic to now that you've been through so many to manage through that trough? Um, oh, so high rise, I managed it by going on the road. Uh, not that uh, I think it was especially effective, but more that it distracted me so much that I didn't I didn't really have time to panic and worry and stress because that was an extremely stressful campaign. High rise hit the funding goal six hours before the campaign ended. Uh, that is brutal. That's a really hard way of doing it. And I was very grateful that Rival Networks hit its camp hit its goal 14 hours after launching because that meant that I had an element of certainty. I thought things were fine. Um, I feel like my games get a pretty high day one percentage because at this point I've got an audience and I have people who are like looking forward to my games. I try to do a good job of getting people excited about my games and talking about them and getting uh, people like sh showing them what they look like, telling them what they're about. So by the time they launch, people have pretty much made up their minds whether they want to back it or not in terms of uh, folks who follow me. Um, I got some really high profile reviews in the networks. A lot of those were built up after the game came out. Um, it's entirely possible uh, if High Rise does well in retail, that'll go back to Kickstarter later this year. Um, to fund a plastic module for high rise, the one that I originally launched with. Um, and that, because if uh, high rise, I'll, look, I'm biased, but high rise is a phenomenal game. And uh, yeah. the people, yeah, people who play it, they're like, they really love it. And I think the game's going to get a lot of critical praise. Um, I, and my hope, fingers crossed, is because I had a relatively small print run of it that it's going to sell out relatively quickly this year. Uh, and that'll enable me to go back to Kickstarter and kind of like with networks executives um, have a larger campaign where now I've got a known quantity. I've got all these reviews uh, and now I've got this really cool module that I need funding for, which are the plastic bits for high rise um, that wasn't in the first version of the game. If you own the first version of the game, you can just buy the module on its own and uh, you don't need to get anything uh, that you already own. Uh, so I think it, it works well for everyone. Um, so um, so I think those in that case, when I go back, I'm going to 
hopefully have some high high profile reviews uh, for that game as well. And that'll help build credibility because people will be like, okay, well, this is a thing. Uh, One of my favorite tactics um, for getting a, um, for, for getting a a game to um, uh, getting a campaign to help manage the bump is I usually do uh, some kind of premium pledge level. And uh, like, for example, in rival networks, like I said before, you could spend $150 and get your face on a card. And originally I had 10 slots for those. And I usually aim low for those that number because a couple of days ago, actually it was yesterday, uh, as of the time of this recording, um, I opened up five extra slots uh, and that gave us a nice little bump. Yep. Yep. And that is, I think, a really useful bump uh, that uh, a creator can do that can push a little bit of extra life into the campaign, uh, give it a little bit of that extra push that, that you need. Uh, and backers responded within two hours, there were those extra pledge levels, extra premium pledge levels were gone. Now with premium pledge levels, you obviously have to be careful. In this case, I'm adding extra art and I reached out to my artist and my graphic designer and I'm like, okay, here's what I'm thinking. Do you think this is realistic? Do you think we could still, deliver this within a reasonable time frame. It's probably going to add a little bit of time, but we might be able to still uh, deliver because I gave a very generous padding. Like I gave a lot of padding for this campaign. I promised December shipping uh, from a campaign that's launching in February, actually early January. Uh, that's a really long turnaround. And honestly, I think I can do quicker. But the reason I did that buffer is stuff like this. Well, maybe it will deliver closer to December uh, if I take the time to do this additional art. Uh, So if you're thinking of uh, premium pledge levels and locking extra ones, just make sure you're not taking your crew by surprise. Make sure they are totally on board with everything. Yeah, they should they should be fully aware of any stretch goal that you might do, even if you don't hit that target. That way, at least they know what they're in store for for work. That's good. All right. Well, in the rival networks, you were talking about videos and um, and how you get support in the trough. And in the rival networks, you don't have any videos. And in Bad Medicine 2, you just had a couple low profile reviews. Yet in some of your other major campaigns, you had Rado and Dice Tower and Tantrum House. So I was quite curious, what makes you decide if a video is needed for a campaign and how do you choose which reviewers that you like to go with? Honestly, it's it's experimentation. You know, I'm uh, I don't know what the magic number is. And I, so I go back and forth. I'm like, well, maybe I'll try a little bit, maybe not. With High Rise, because I didn't have the art yet, I felt like it was very, very important to show people what the gameplay was like. Um, I don't think that tactic worked. If I were to do High Rise again, I would have waited a little bit longer to get some art ready so people would have seen what the game would have looked like. Um, and, uh, and that's one reason why I think when High Rise goes back on Kickstarter, it's a done, the, the base game is done. It's a question of what the expansion, what the plastic bits are go- exactly going to look like. But um, I think that's a, um, uh, I, I think that's something I'm still sort of playing with and messing around with. Um, honestly, with the Rival Networks, I wanted to have a few more videos. Um, I kind of ran out of time and I figured, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and launch anyway. I'm not 100% convinced that more videos would have helped me that much. Um, I mean, High Rise had these high-profile previews, and um, I got eyeballs, but I didn't get conversions. And I think a lot of that was on me. Um, But for this one, I wanted to try a campaign without a lot of that overhead and see what that was like. 
Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back and forth. You know, it's just going to be continued experimentation and see what happens. Yeah, and sometimes you really do have to figure out what is that conversion. Like if you get a good video from Dice Tower, you can get 2,000 views, but if you only get 10 backers out of it, what did you really get out of that, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's, especially it's hard if you're, to predict that conversion rate. Yep, especially if you're paying money for it, because a lot of previews, excuse me, they do uh, they, they, they do charge money, and I don't think this is a bad thing so long as the media outlet makes it very clear that this is sponsored content, uh, this is a paid preview. Um, I think paid previews are, are fine, you know, um, I don't think that there's a problem with, um, with that. Uh, yeah. And but, often at the, often at the end, they'll state that if it's something you're interested, you could back it, but they don't really say that, you know, you should go and back this right yeah, now, which, yeah, is, which yeah. is what I like about them. It does it very obvious. Yeah. And, but I, and I think Good. they make it clear also that, you know, money has changed hands for this, which is an excellent way for these uh, media platforms to, uh, to get revenue because they need, they need revenue. They need to pay for equipment. They need to pay for the time. I mean, this is an enormous, making a video is an enormous amount of time and effort. So, you know, the idea of them wanting money for that is in entirely reasonable and so as a creator you know um i'm i totally understand uh why why they do this and i'm, I'm happy to do it uh the only thing you want to look out for you don't want one of these uh companies to do sponsored content and not tell you that it's sponsored content i think that's where it crosses the line yeah yeah i agree uh, many new creators don't have any idea what the Kickstarter platform is like to format in. And it sounds like you do much of the work yourself, like inserting photos or videos or text, what content should be included in what sequence. Uh, so do you do your own page development and, or do you collaborate? And what do you think is the most challenging part of creating that page? So I'm actually pretty proud of Rival Networks because I did just about everything myself. Um, well, quote unquote myself, I used assets for my graphic designer and um, and Illustrator. So it's not like I did all the graphic design and all the Illustrator. And my graphic designer took a look at the page and uh, gave me amazing pieces of feedback. My graphic designer is Heiko Gunther, by the way. Um, he's done a bunch of really high-profile projects, including he did graphic design for Potion Exploder, but Potion Explosion. He did Tesla versus Edison. Um, I think he's one of the best in the business. Uh, he's also absolutely hilarious, and I love working with him. Uh, the illustrations are by Travis Kinchy. Um, Travis, yep. I'm trying to get Travis, uh, to work on another board game. Um, and I got to meet him at origins and I actually walked him around to all these other booths and be like, this is my artist for the networks. Hire him. He's amazing. And he's really, really yeah. good. So, you know, I feel like I have a bit of a head start with those two folks. Uh, but in previous campaigns, I hired other people, uh, to help me with the graphics. Uh, for this one, I have enough of a handle at this point on the Adobe creative suite, uh, that I can do it myself. You know, I'm, I know enough about Photoshop that I can, uh, manipulate images. Um, I'm really comfortable in illustrator. Uh, and let's talk a little bit about the video because, um, I do a lot of work on the video. Uh, and yeah. honestly, the video is probably the thing that I do the most work in that I feel gets the smallest return. I don't really think people care too right. much about a video, you know, but at the same time, I can't not have a video. Um, so, uh, seeing, for example, Jonathan Ritter Roderick's, uh, video for pineapple, I thought was a great video because it looked like he didn't put 
this is not a dig. Uh, I think Jonathan is one of these people who's really good at Kickstarter, and he's one of the smartest minds in the business. He's the guy behind Dragoon and uh, Lay Waste Games, a bunch of other stuff, Metal, uh, that he did with Jordan Draper. He's a really, really clever guy. And for the Kickstarter video for his latest project, Pineapple, uh, he just had a really quick, simple slideshow. And at the very start, he said, all you're going to see are stock images. That's it. So, like, he set this expectation (laughs) that it's not going to be this amazing video, which meant that he could do a video that he didn't have to spend an enormous amount of time on, which is smart because I don't think a campaign like that would benefit from a really outrageously produced video. Now, for me, I really like to make, like, videos that just feel something for me i'm super proud of most of my campaign videos i script them myself um i edit them myself i do all the sound myself um so i do a lot of work for them and um, i have some really talented friends who uh who help out so uh the high-rise video and the bad medicine second opinion video which i think were two of my best live action videos uh they were shot by my friend steve landau uh who uh, works professionally in film and video, and he is absolutely amazing. So that's why that video looks so good. Um, and uh, I finally, uh, my friend Bebo finally convinced me on the high-rise video to color correct. And uh, if you shoot your own videos and you want them to look good, please color correct. It makes your videos come out so much better. And I I really have done that on, on my videos since then. And they look better that way. Uh, it doesn't look like things are being shot from a bunch of different cameras. Um, but yeah, I'm really proud of the Bad Medicine Second Opinion video. I think that was one of the best videos I've done um, in terms of because it's tough with the Kickstarter video. Um, you want to yeah. explain what the game does and what the game is, but you also want to be entertaining and you want to be novel. You know, I don't want like. Okay, here's another After Effects animation with a deep voice narrator and epic music. I mean, that's like every Kickstarter video. You know, I want to be different. Yeah. So uh, with all the Networks games, um, we animated uh, Travis's art. Um, and this is another thing I'm kind of proud of. Uh, originally, my friend Ben Schulman uh, did the animations, but he was unavailable. Uh, so he forwarded me the files that he used for the uh, animations from After Effects, and I did the animations myself. Now, granted, I sort of used Ben's templates, so all the characters are moving in their own ways, but all the mouth stuff um, I did myself, uh, which I'd never done yeah. before, but I'm really like, oh, this is another thing I can do. Oh, this is great. So I think for creators, I think the takeaway here is the more stuff you can do, the better. Um, I like I have a background in, in film and post-production, so um, I like doing this stuff, uh, but... I think you yeah, have and the to, more you do yourself, the more you know what you're paying for, too. Yeah, yeah. It saves me money because I can do it myself. You know, if I had other people edit the video for me and uh, do sound for the video for me, it would be incredibly expensive. I, I'm, I know how to do it so that it looks good. At least I think it looks good. Uh, but if you're a, you're a creator doing this, you know, try to be I think efficiency is key. Uh, communicate what the game is. Uh, communicate how it plays. Uh, keep the Kickstarter video under two minutes. Remember, you're pitching. You're not. This is not a rules video. You don't need to explain how the game, every single rule of how the game plays. Just give us a pitch. Get us interested. To get us like excited about the yeah. game. And then underneath, do a separate video. That's the rules video. And that's what we did for Rival Networks. Um, my friend Orion McClellan, uh, who is a game designer himself and a phenomenal game designer, 
um, he shot uh, a Rival Networks playthrough video with me. And so that's the official playthrough video. Um, and I edited that and did all the sound on that one as well. But that was super easy because Orion has really good equipment and uh, he knows how to set it up and make it work well. So uh, he did a phenomenal job on his end. Yeah, I watched that one, and you guys went through multiple different camera angles. There was good voice. There was good uh, close-ups of the the pieces, so it really was a good yep. playthrough video. But you're right, that's not what you want to show in the top video. All you want to show there is the hook and some visuals and just get people to want to watch the rest of your page. Yeah. Great. Now, creators get their games and names out in many different ways, and I've heard that you go to many conventions, as you talked about. You might tail them down a little bit uh, this year, but... You also are on several podcasts, and that's where I kind of came to know your name from breaking into board games and ludology. Uh, do you feel it's important for game designers and publishers to have that public presence? And what do you think has the most impact? I think people need to know who you are somehow. So ideally, you're Stonemeyer Games, and people know you because you make amazing games. I think Jamie makes amazing games. Uh, both, I mean, the look and feel of his games is legendary, but I think they play really well also to the... And he's big enough that he has a sizable legion of haters now also, of people who play his games and are like, oh, they're not that great, uh, because there's so much excitement about them that there's always this temptation to pop the balloon, you know, and... I feel once you get to that level, it's almost a compliment, you know, to get that sort of like, like when Splendor came out, you know, Splendor was really beloved and now Splendor's a whipping boy. Like Splendor gets so much hate, like this game is a Splendor killer. Um, and I think that speaks to how good a game Splendor is and how much, um, like how, how well it's, it was received is that it was big enough to get the backlash, you know? So I think if you're first off, if your brand is big enough to get a backlash um, and a backlash for being good, not a backlash. Like if you're if you get a backlash because you did something really dumb or really hateful. OK, yeah, congratulations. You earned that and you should probably course correct. Uh, but if you're getting a backlash because um, people want your games to be more X, like people want your games to be uh like reward more mastery or they want your games to be a little le less luck based, you know, uh, your game is appealing to an audience that's not them. Uh, then I think there's, it's not so bad. Um, but I think if Jamie has committed any crime, any crime, it's the crime of making games that are not for everyone, which is impossible. You can't make a game for everyone. Yeah. Uh, that's everybody's game, right? Yeah. <laughs> it just gets yeah. more exposure. Yeah. But I mentioned Jamie because uh, he doesn't do very many conventions. He doesn't run a podcast. He does um, energize his base, and he does it really well. He does, like, videos every week, um, and he engages he, – he writes – he's very prolific with his blog writing. Uh, he's super active, very responsive. Like, every time I email him, I get an answer almost immediately. Like, he's amazing yeah. at that, and he takes it very, very seriously. So – for me, Jamie's very much a role model. Um, he does everything so well and so right. Uh, but he didn't do it by going to conventions. He didn't do it by having a podcast. Uh, for everybody, it's going to be a little different. There's no magic way to do it. Um, for me, uh, I was on a podcast called Breaking Into Board Games that I founded with Ian yeah. Zhang and Tony Miller. Um, Dan Letzrig has since taken my place when I uh, had so little time that I had to 
start dropping things. And unfortunately, I was like, you know, I've said pretty much everything I need to say for breaking into board games. Uh, and they've been on fire ever since. They've had amazing guests. They're they're an outstanding podcast run by outstanding people. So um, while I'm sad that I had to leave, um, the show is in really good hands. Um, but I was really fortunate that Jeff Engelstein invited me to be a host on Ludology. Uh, and now Emma Larkins and I are running that ship. And I think between those shows, I've gotten a base, you know, I've gotten, uh, obviously nowhere near as large as Janie's base, but large enough that I got the rival networks funded in 14 hours. Like at this point, people, when I say something, people listen and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Um, now if you're listening and you're, uh, you want to go on Kickstarter, people have to know you for some things, uh, for something. Um, and for a lot of people, it's creating content. Like that's one of the easiest ways to do that. Uh, whether it's yeah. writing blog posts, whether it's making videos, whether it's making a podcast, uh, there's all sorts of ways to do it. Um, I also really worked on a really strong ground game for the first five years of my company's ex existence. Uh, this year, for various reasons, I'm sort of taking a step back. Um, one of those reasons is sanity. <laughs> because, <laughs> I mean, my travel schedule last year was absolutely bonkers. And this year, it's still going to be pretty wild. Um, <laughs> even though I'm trying to take a step back, um, I'm trying to focus a little more on trade shows because there's a force multiplier there. Uh, because I go into distribution enough that... You know, when you go to um, a regular convention like Origins or Gen Con and you make a sale, you've made one sale. Whereas if you're at a yeah. trade show and you make a sale to a retailer in that, like, you convince them to buy your game, you have not made one sale. You've made, like, at least six sales, maybe 12 sales, maybe 24 sales. You know, you've made several sales because they're going to buy in bulk. And hopefully they're going to evangelize your game. Now, a lot of game stores, like if you've been in a game store recently, you know that they're not going to evangelize most games. <laughs> you go into a lot of game stores and it's like piles and piles and piles of games everywhere. And these are all games that have come out in the last two weeks. So, I mean, uh, it's getting harder and harder to curate. But by making that face-to-face -face connection, somebody can come in and be like, I need a game for two players that takes 45 minutes and it's got a cool theme. And they're like, well, I've got this game called The Rival Networks. It's about running a TV network. And uh, hopefully that will get people excited. Um, and that's one reason why like, I'm trying to take a step back from doing smaller conventions. Um, as much as I adore a show like Geekway to the West or Dice Tower Con, uh, I think those are amazing shows. But as a publisher, um, it's, it's really hard for me to justify attending those uh, when I could be at uh, like a trade show instead. Um, and I only have so much time, like I could in theory do both, but, um, I mean, that's where the sanity part comes in. So you can't be on 24 seven and you can't be every place. So you just have to yeah. pick and choose your battles and yeah. hopefully you pick the ones that have the most impact. Like you said, if, if going through a potential retail distribution or through trade show purchases helps you out, that's the way you go. Yep. Now let's go but, to uh, someone listening to the show. Um, perhaps they're a new creator. Um, I think going to conventions is a really good way to build a good ground game and to start out getting the word out. Um, you're not going to do it in one convention. Like that's the, that's the bad news. Some people have this idea that they'll go to Gen Con and get a table and they'll show their game to thousands of people. Uh, well, if you have, if you have an event table, you're not going to, a thousand people won't see your game if you have an event table. Um, cause let's say you have a game that's an hour long. Let's say it plays four players. Let's say you get to demo it eight times a day. So that's 32 people a day, uh, over the course of four days. 
Um, you know, that's about 130 people. Um, and that's not, it's not a lot, you know, um, maybe out yeah. of 130 people, maybe 70 sign up for a mailing list, which means when you run your Kickstarter, maybe only 20 or 30 actually back on the first day. Uh, so you're not talking big numbers at a convention. Now, if you have a booth, uh, you're going to do a lot more business, but if you have a booth, you really want to have product to sell. Like you don't want to have a booth and have nothing to sell because uh, Gen Con costs about $2,000 for a 10 by 10 booth. Um, right. And that's not including uh, travel. That's not including hotels. I mean, you're spending at least $5,000 for Gen Con for a small presence if you have a booth. Um, so. Uh, and huge can, competitors. <laughs> the, the competitors. Like, honestly, I'm not so sure the competitors like people generally don't go to Gen Con to buy one game. You know, uh, there is a bit of competition, of course, but I always say that the biggest competition is with yourself. Like if you have two games in your product line and they're very similar, then they're competing. You know, that's the biggest example of competition. Um, if you have a game that's very similar to another publisher's game. Yeah, maybe there's some competition there. But like, I don't think, say... I almost launched Rival Networks on the same day as Oath and Return to Dark Tower. Um, I rescheduled because I needed a little more time. I don't think it would have been a big deal to launch on that day because my game is 25 bucks and their games are all above 90 uh, which isn't to say that my game is better than theirs, but my game is different from a product level. Like, I'm not competing with a lot of Stonemaier games because my game's... Uh, other than High Rise, don't cost that much. Like I'd argue that High Rise does compete with a Stonemaier game. Um, High Rise does compete with like the more premium games. High Rise does compete with a game like Root. Um, you know those more expensive games. High Rise yeah. is a seventy-five dollar game, so it's going to be in that more rarefied air. But my games that cost twenty bucks, um, no, they're not in that competition. They're they're more competing with games like. Um, like Oink uh, games, for example. Now, um, let's take a step back. Like, from a general point of view, yes, I am competing. Yes, I am competing for the general overall dollar. Um, and yeah, to take that's a step, kind of what I was thinking of. Yeah. You're just a person only has X amount of dollars when they yeah. go there, so what they're going to yeah. spend it on is limited. Yeah, and taking a step back from that, uh, maybe somebody is has plans. Maybe the night of the convention, maybe Friday night. They're going to leave the convention hall and they're going to go see the newest Marvel movie. That's competition also in a lot of ways as well. So there's a few different ways to look at it. Um, but I prefer to look at it from my my favorite perspective is, OK, from a realistic point of view, um, like if a person is going in um, only having followed, say, the Dice Tower or Shut Up and Sit Down they're a hard sell for me, you know, because they're probably going for the games they've heard of. They're going for Dark Tower. They're going for Forbidden Island. They're going for Root. Uh, they're going for Catan, Pandemic, like the big names that they've heard of. Uh, yeah. They may have heard the networks, but for them, that's an obscure game. Uh, my audience is more of a person who listens to a lot Ludology, listens to a lot of podcasts, is very active on BGG, someone who's really ingrained in the hobby market. Like, they're my, that's my market, you know, and they're the people who are more likely to have a bigger budget, you know, to be like, okay, I have, you know, I'm going to, I've got, all right, maybe it's Essen, you know, and they've got that, the Essen wheelbarrow, you know, they've got the Essen little um, thing that they're, uh, the, the, the wagon that they're dragging behind them. This is a genuine thing that people do at Essen. They have literally have wagons that they drag behind them. 
uh, and they they yeah. buy games, they just add them to the wagons, you know. And that is uh, that's more my market, you know. Uh, and I'd love to expand. I was hoping that Rival Networks would be an opportunity to expand that market. Um, hasn't expanded there yet. Maybe the retail version will. Maybe it won't. Uh, but you know, it's you just got to try different things and uh, keep on pushing. I'm grateful that I have a foundation of what I have, and hopefully, in the next couple of years, I can build to the next level and start attracting the next level. And so, someone who is in the market for a game like Pandemic, um, maybe I will be able to compete for their dollar as well. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a great way to look at it, and I'd love to see you have that success. I mean, kind of speaking of that, we just have a few minutes left, but uh, I was curious somebody that has created for so long and such um, interesting and productive titles. Uh, people have had fun with your creations already. You've created great games. You've already put your name out there. So beyond that, what do you think you want to be remembered for in this amazing hobby that we're in? I want to have helped people. You know, I'm, it's really what I try to do. I want my games and my presence to improve the world. Um, and this might be partially because uh, the Good Place finale was on a couple of weeks ago, and I still haven't <laughs> stopped thinking about it. Oh, my gosh. Must have been something wrong with my TV because it looked like the image was all swimmy and watery. Um, but <laughs> uh, it was it was really, really moving. But, yeah, that's in, in a game perspective, I do want to uh, campground it. You know, I do want to leave the the hobby better than how i found it um and so i'm gonna have a product a little bit later this year um i can't talk too much about it yet uh but i'm really excited about it it's not a game it's a tool that uh the idea is it'll make your game days a little more productive um a little better and make sure everybody is on the same page when they sit down to play a game um and that's the kind of thing that i hope will um, help bring people together and make people understand each other, uh, help people check in with each other and be like, before they start a game, hey, you okay to play this game? Um, which a lot of people don't do. You know, gamers and people yeah. in general, I think, are really bad at uh, communicating or even understanding their internal states. And I think anything I can do as a designer to help you be a little more self-reflective and be like, you know, I'm not feeling that great right now. Maybe I should take a break. Uh, instead of being like, I'm at a convention and I need to play another game because that's what we do at conventions. I'm a little <laughs> tired, but I'll power through. Those are unhealthy habits. And it's much better to be like, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. I need to take a break. I'll go eat something. You folks go ahead and play this game. I won't get to play today. I may not get to play at this convention, but I'm going to miss some games. So I will miss this game, you know? Um, as far as the games that I'm putting out, um, I'm really looking to create as many different kinds of games as possible, partially because that's my, that's what I enjoy as a designer. But also I think from a business perspective, I want people to leave my booth with a game that appeals to them. And um, I know some friends who uh, are designers and publishers and they tend to release games that are, that they go for a brand and they're like, okay, this is my brand is this weight of game. And I don't want to do that. I want my games to be very varied and to feel different. I feel like that's, that's a good thing to do. But at the same time, I want to believe in all my games. That's why I haven't signed any games from other designers. I don't believe in them the way I believe in my own games. So I can't yeah. sell you the game because selling you a game is not like 
there's a stereotype of a used car salesman. Like they're going to sell you a lemon. They're going to lie to your face. And that's bad marketing. You know, I think in order to sell a game and to sell a game well, um, you have to believe in it and genuinely believe in it and stand behind it. Uh, And that's one reason why Jamie is so good at what he does is because he believes 100% in all his games, as he should. They're phenomenal games. And I want to have games like that also that, like, I wouldn't be making this game and selling it to you if I didn't believe in it. And if it didn't go through the grinder during playtesting and go through all the difficult conversations of, this isn't working. This isn't working. Working. How can this be better? What are we doing here? You know, and at some point it's like, once you go through the fire, you're like, okay, if somebody asks me, why is this game do this? I can be like, oh, it's because I want to do this and this and that, you know? And if they don't like it, maybe they're just looking for a different game. Yeah, and I can tell you have an extreme passion for the hobby. Uh, I've heard you on the podcasts, even hearing you now, you can tell how much you truly care. And the fact that you have a new tool potentially coming out later this year, color me intrigued. I'll definitely be paying attention to that. So thank you for sharing that with me. Uh, and Gil, on a, maybe on a more personal note, because I always love to add one personal touch. I'm actually staring at a picture of a ferret right now as I look at my Skype. And your company yes. name are that ferret. So to some, this might be considered a pesky rodent. To others, it's a fun pet. I'm curious how you feel about your furry friends and if you'd recommend them as a pet for others. Okay, so I should have, when I saw the show notes, I should have told you about this. Uh, ferrets are not rodents. They are mustelids. So, uh, they, yes, <laughs> none taken. Um, but, uh, yeah, ferrets actually eat rodents. So they're, oh. they're, uh, so, uh, ferrets are extremely misunderstood. Uh, I will a lot of times get a Facebook post being like, look at this ferret and it's a black footed ferret and a black footed ferret is an endangered wild animal, um, who is indigenous to North America. And the ferrets I have are fully domesticated, um, to the point that they cannot survive in the wild. Like when you have a pet ferret, mm-hmm. that ferret can't go out. Like, uh, I mean, on a leash they can, but um, yeah. like some people keep quote unquote outdoor ferrets, but that means they're in a hutch outside or there is um, really good fencing. You know, you don't have the kind of thing of like an outdoor cat. Oh, they're going to go outside. They're going to hunt some birds. They'll come home every night. You don't can't do that with a ferret. They they don't know what to do. They have no idea how to survive. So we're talking really misunderstood animals. Um, They're not wild. They're not really nasty. Like a lot of people think of them as really bitey and nasty animals. I think really what it comes down to is people see ferrets and they think of small animals. They sort of put them on the same level as a gerbil or a hamster. Uh, But ferrets Mm -hmm. are really more like dogs or cats in terms of intelligence, in terms of commitment, in terms of how much they're going to cost you, uh, in terms like like vet visits and that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, and in terms of the connection you make with them, you know, they, they have enormous personalities. Uh, they all have different personalities right now. I have one ferret who's a cuddler. She's, uh, she likes to just hang out with you. And I have one ferret who's just a maniac and she loves to run around and play and she, and break things and be really super destructive. Uh, so, um, (laughs) I mean, you you might be like, uh, why do I want an animal like that? But you look at cat people and, you know, cat people, it seems like the more destructive and nastier the cat is, the crazier about the cat the cat person is, you know. So uh, there is, um, you know, there's precedence for it. You just have to frame it correctly. Um, but we wake up in the morning and the crazy ferret 
is is up and she looks at us and we have just made her day because we're awake and she is so happy to see us and she gets so excited she starts jumping around and we let her chase us around the house and then we chase her around the house and she has a ball she loves it and seeing that pure joy is i mean it's you can't buy that with money um and like you, you see pictures of otters um, on the internet, and that's pretty much what we live through every day. Uh, so it's uh, so I would recommend a ferret as a pet enthusiastically as long as you know what you're getting into. You know, you're not getting an animal that you keep in the cage all the time. You're not getting an animal that you know you can get for your five year old uh, that you can just ignore. You know, this is a real commitment. Uh, this is a critter that needs stimulus, that needs you to play with them. Needs food, needs nail clippings, that sort of thing. Doesn't really need baths. Uh, don't worry about giving them a bath. Uh, they, they take care of that. Uh, they right. take care of the cleanliness part. Uh, but you'll have to clean up after them. You'll have to litter train them. Uh, they are litter trainable, and they're pretty good about that, but you have to take care of that. Um, you have to buy them food. You have to research food and make sure you're buying them the best food because uh, there's a lot of food out there that's not really that great for them. They're obligate carnivores like cats. Uh, so you can't just buy them like uh, standard off the shelf crappy stuff uh, because that's got uh, carbs in it and they can't process yeah. it. So it's a lot of things you got to read up about them. But uh, if you know what you're getting in for, just absolutely phenomenal pets. Like you get a little piece of um, uh, of like air conditioning tubing, uh, plastic air conditioning tubing, just put it on the floor and you have made their day. They will go wild. They'll just run back and forth inside the tube. They love like that. In the box, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They love that. That's awesome. Well, that's some, some cool information about ferrets that I didn't know. And I'm sure most of the audience didn't know either. So thanks for sharing that with me, Gil. My pleasure. Um, and yeah, I think we're at the end here. I mean, you shared a lot of great insights. You've had a wonderful Kickstarter journey, not only with the rival networks, but throughout your network experience, uh, high rise and bad medicine. Uh, just really neat to see the different journeys that you've been through and being able to share some of your learnings with us. So um, I hope that inspires and educates some of the other creators out there and will help make turn their, some of their ideas into reality too. Did you yeah, have any final I, thoughts before we sign off? Um, now that I can think of, it's pretty late over here. So um, I will probably leave it at that. I've probably babbled enough. <laughs> Well, we enjoyed your babbling, and like I said, we can get lots of nuggets of wisdom out of that, and uh, really do appreciate you joining me. For those of you that were listening to the podcast, if there's one thing you can do to encourage and motivate other Kickstarter journeys, just take a minute and a dollar or two and support a project that catches your eye today. Uh, given that Gills is live right now, and if you happen to be listening while it's live, uh, even support his. I'm sure he'd love to see uh, a little bit more interest in the campaign, and uh, you could see how his creation proceeds in his updates and beyond, because that's always fun to follow in Kickstarter, too. Uh, we might not be able to buy all the cool things we see, but that little bit can help pad the bottom line and help moving projects in the right direction. All right. Thanks again, Gil, and good night, all. Thank you.